Good morning. You are joining us via podcast or by CD for our worship for February the 6th, 2022. Uh, For whatever reason, the opening part of this is missing. So I just wanted to add this little intro. Welcome to worship, and I pray that you have a wonderful week. Our scripture today comes from Luke 6. I, honestly, I'll be preaching on pretty much all of the chapter, but I am pulling out these parts in particular. 6, 12 through 16, and 20 through 26. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, who he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Looking at his disciples, he said these words, Blessed are those who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, when they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how uh, their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to everyone, I'm sorry, woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Sorry. Woe to you. You, when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Blessed is the word of the Lord. Amen. A successful ministry always needs at least two things to start. First, it needs a reason to exist, which seems like it's rather on the face, like of course you need a reason for the ministry to exist, but believe it or not, Ministries are sometimes started without a good, solid reason for them to exist. You know, usually it's some group of people that are being underserved or in generally in need of something, whether it's material, psychological, or spiritual. Secondly, you need a driver, a single person or a group of people that push that ministry forward, a founder who takes serious the struggles. Sometimes it's someone who rises out of the group, who then assists them and and founds them. Um, You know, there's a a well-known preacher out there, Nadia Weber-Boltz, who came out of a group of comedians um, to found a ministry for comedians that has become a major church. Or think Dan West, who in the Heifer Project, you know, Dan goes to another place and sees a problem you know, sees these hungry children 
and then using his own expertise, brings together others and their resources in order to feed and teach the children. Now, if a ministry is successful, that means it will grow. Generally, it's not true for all ministries, but most ministries are looking to grow. But this shift from a small organization to a medium and then maybe to a large one means that the ministry must fundamentally change. After all, when it's small, a single founder can pretty much do it all. Can make all the calls, can pay the bills, can organize the volunteers. But once you get to a certain size, you really need someone who specializes in finances. You need that person who's really good at technology, that person who's good at organizing and finding volunteers. New leaders must be called out to assist the founder, hopefully allowing that founder to then do what they do best. But this leads to good things and bad things. More minds sharing authority, making decisions means more possibilities, more space for creativity, more spontaneity. But it also can mean confusion. It can mean damage, even, if different leaders end up working against each other. So the organization needs to retain a strong core message, that mission statement by which they circle themselves around. It also needs a system of bylaws, the rule book that clearly states roles and responsibilities of members, as well as the ethics that will guide the group. With a strong core message and an understanding of rules and ethics, ethics, new leaders are empowered to do their work and to expand the ministry. Perhaps one day, they themselves will become founders as well as they expand the ministry into new places, into new forms, and they call out leaders that will work underneath them who will continue to expand that ministry ever outward. This, of course, is also the story of the church, the capital C church. One man, okay, to be fair, he's more than a man, but still, one person who sees the problem with humanity, how humans have continually lost their way, and the many times God has reached out and corrected behavior, how God even sent down a rule book on how to base our lives and humans still falling away, even turning that rule book into a tool of oppression and an excuse for sinful behavior. I wish I could say that this is something that was ended when we got an updated testament to our Bibles, but no, it's something that continues to happen. But the incarnated God would offer an example of what it means to really live a God-reflecting life. The incarnation is born to a poor couple. And he quietly grows up in a small town experiencing what it means to live a human life. After three decades of this fairly normal existence, the man begins to proclaim that God's kingdom is near. He teaches others. He performs miraculous healings. He goes to his hometown to those who had seen him since he was a little boy and proclaimed to them the year of the Lord's Jubilee and that it will be offered to all peoples. They may have rejected him, but others listened. 
others began to follow. Many joined of their own volition. They heard this man speak and they said, I must follow. Others are called away to follow this strange Jesus of Nazareth. Some were respectable. Maybe not the pillars of their society, but the backbone that made it work. Some lived upon the edge of society. The ones that were there that made sure that, well, the drains got emptied. They weren't exactly well respected, but they were there and they were necessary. And others lived beyond the edge, the outcast. But this man, Jesus, he didn't matter to them. So long as they were willing to repent of their sins and open themselves to a new way of living. However, just as I talked about, the gathering reached a point in which Jesus could not do it all. Even the Savior could not do it all. So he needed a group, a group to help him, to assist him and share the burden of leadership. So he does what any of us should do. He goes and he finds a quiet space to be with God in prayer. And when he returns, he names 12 men who he will call his apostles, his appointed messengers. Two Simons, two Jameses, two Judases, Andrew, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. These men will go on to form the foundation of the ministry going forward. Now, why 12? You know, I've, I've never been the founder of some ministry that exploded like this, but I just can't see me jumping straight from no one to 12. 12 is an awkward number. It's a lot of people to fit around a table. Not only that, but Jesus, knowing that this, these men would have to carry on his will after he was gone, 12 is an illogical number. It's even. I mean, even in our commissions here at the church, we always make them odd numbers, right? So we have a tiebreaker. But no, he picks 12, an awkward even and an awkward in size number to start with. So why? Okay, so the easy question is, there are 12 tribes of Israel, so Jesus picks 12 men. Okay, yeah, that's sort of true. But that's kind of like looking at the color red and saying, oh, it's red. And not looking at closer and saying, oh, this is actually a deep red. Or it's got some gold mixed in or something. There's, it's much deeper and richer than simply red. I'm going to go into a little bit of a tangent because I fell down the mystical, mathematical rabbit hole this last week and it was interesting. You see, 12 is beyond just simply symbolic. It's a special number. If after church you want to go on to Wikipedia, Wikipedia has pages about specific numbers because someone had time to sit there and write a whole page about the number 12. But 12 is special mathematically. It fits into all these crazy different categories, and it's usually either the smallest version of that category or the largest. But beyond that, it has a mystical quality to it. Now, mind you, up until the mid-1600s, and pretty much all of us here are, are mainly of European descent, in Europe, it wasn't until the 1600s when they said, you know what? Perhaps math 
is about numbers. Before that, they all said, you know what, math may be about numbers, but it's also about maybe summoning demons or angels or controlling magic. Numbers were magical. And that stretches all the way back to the beginning of time. As far as we know, as soon as humans started calculating things, we made them magical. And in the days of Jesus, the Jews had their own sense of what numbers meant. To have a number was symbolic, the same way that you may consider 13 unlucky or 7 especially lucky. So, a little more down the rabbit hole. 3 and 4, 3 times 4 equals 12. 3, I mean, we all know this in the Trinity. We all know this in a lot of things like that. Three is the number of perfection and stability in Judaism. Four, like the four corners of the earth, is strength and balance. Five and seven equal twelve. Five, God gives us blessings in five in the Old Testament. Yes, there are ten commandments, but if you read through them, you realize that it's two sets of five. Five that tell us how we should talk and relate with God, and five that tell us how we should relate with one another. God gifts the people five books of law. The people respond in blessing God in five groups of psalms. Seven, even in ancient Judaism, was a number of good luck. Beyond that, it represented God's perfection. That is perfection beyond perfection. After all, God rests on the seventh day. We are commanded to do the same. On the seventh year, we rest. On the seventh uh, the seventh time that we rest every seven years, the 49th year, on the 50th year, in celebration of that, we have the Jubilee. One last one, six. Because six was actually a bad number. Which, you know, as soon as I say six and you think Christianity, you might think, oh, six, 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 you know, the evil number. Well, even in Judaism, six was a bad number. Because humans were created on the sixth day, and with humans being created, so was created human weakness. But if you double the number, you bring two humans together. Two humans are greater than the, their sum. Like, yes, six and six equals 12. But in coming together, working together, we cover up our weaknesses. We make up for them, and we become greater than we could do separately. And so we end up with 12. 12 holds within it all of those traits of perfection and perfection beyond perfection. Stability, strength, balance, abundance, luck, protection, and salvation. It's seen as being fulfilled within Judaism when, God, when Israel is at its golden age, when all trial, 12 tribes are united under David. It is seen in perfection within the 12 tribes in their original form, the 12 brothers. And even, even when Levi, the, tr the tribe that's given the priestly charge and said, you're not allowed to have your own territory, they don't decide that then, well, we'll still just have 12. We'll have Levi in the 11 territories. No. They break up J Joseph's territories into Ephraim's and Manasseh's, Joseph's sons. And so they still will always maintain that 12. 
even the disciples inherently understand that 12 was important. Because when Judas leaves, they don't just say, oh, well, okay. They don't have a question as to whether he should be replaced. They just question who should replace him. They bring their number back up to 12. Which again, going back to my whole voting issue, it makes no sense to have 12. If you had 11, Peter can be the tiebreaker. But with 12, no one is. And so they bring Matthias on. They didn't want to appear to outsiders as unstable or unlucky. And they didn't want to invite misfortune themselves. And yes, 11 in, Judish, in Jewish culture of that day is an especially unlucky number. Now, honestly, I kind of went into this at the beginning of my process of writing, and I wanted to include it. And there is a specific message that just comes out of this number business. Because numbers today, let's face it, we know that truly numbers don't have good luck or bad luck in them. They are just numbers. But just because something is symbolic doesn't mean it's not important. Because by their choosing to be 12, to retain that solid foundation appearance to those outside, they are able also to attract more people to themselves. And the importance that when we view ourselves, we view our own foundations, that we remember that those outside, though it's just symbolic, will judge us by that. And so as much as we should be focusing on the practical and the important, we should also view, we should also consider how we are appearing. But anyway, going back into this, Luke doesn't make a mistake when he orders his gospel in this way. He wants the readers to understand that Jesus is creating a new organization here on earth. The same way that 12 represents God's perfect kingdom, he wants to show again this new kingdom being built perfectly in God's image. A kingdom that was expected for those by those who are waiting for the Messiah. Now this is not a kingdom that will come when Jesus returns. This is a reflection of that kingdom. A lesser kingdom. One that we are still members of we call the church. This is reflected throughout Luke's works. After all, Luke doesn't write one book. He writes two, the first one following the ministry of Jesus and the second one following the acts of the apostles as they spread the gospel throughout, as we see the church grow from this small group to what it is today. When both books are read and viewed in totality, we see God through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, through us, building a human organization to change the world. And it all began with that mission statement we read two weeks ago. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He has set his mission statement and now he follows the next thing in our flow chart of what organizations have to do as they grow. <coughs> and he called the 12 
the 12 who would eventually spread the gospel as far as modern days countries of Georgia, Belarus, Spain, Ethiopia, and India. And following onwards, Jesus sets out the bylaws next, the rules by which this organization would be guided. Now, we call this the Sermon on the Plains. And I know we don't talk about it a lot because we're brethren. We like the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Plains is the little cousin, the abridged version. After all, the Sermon on the Mount, 111 verses. It takes three full chapters to get through. Sermon on the Plain is just 33 verses and doesn't even make up an entire chapter. It's something like two-thirds. Every section, or nearly every section in Luke's version, has a corresponding, um, corresponding larger version in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. But let us not mistake corresponding with identical, because they are not the same sermon. Luke is not talking to the same people. Jesus' message in Luke is concerned with different problems. It's concerned with transformation of the world. Now, you know, I'm, I'm brethren, born and bred brethren. I love the Sermon on the Mount. If I have to point to one section of the Bible and say, what does it mean to be a Christian? Matthew 5 through 7, right there. You will find it. But that's the problem. Matthew is writing to people like me. <coughs> Excuse me. Matthew is writing to people like me, to people who are in the church already, or to Jews that he thinks he can convince to join the church. He's writing to the in crowd, or the near in. So Matthew tends to be a little more focused on the spiritual issues. And I'm not saying that Jesus said one of these and didn't say the other. I think Jesus preached both of these. But just like any preacher works their salt, they preach different sermons to different groups of people because not everyone needs to hear the same message. So Matthew is concerned with people living together in community. So he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Luke looks outwards while Matthew looks inwards. Christ has a message to the world. And so he brings forward Jesus' teachings that have the same emphasis of spiritual, that don't have the same emphasis over spiritual, of spiritual over material. This transforms the few beatitudes that he talks about to address what his ministry should gain in this world. He says, blessed to you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for your, your will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. It is not blessed are those who are poor in spirit, but those who are actually poor, the outcast, those who lack material wealth, those who have no money. It's not those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's those who actually are hungry, whose bellies gnaw. Those of you who weep, you will not just be comforted, 
But the very reason for your sorrow will be reversed and you will be filled with joy. Jesus is being absolutely clear on this. In fact, he goes beyond and tells us exactly that he um, tells us that he is talking to those who are hungry, who are poor, who are sorrowful in this life by doing something that Jesus only does in Luke. This is Luke's unique part in the sermon where Jesus preaches damnation. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you will mourn and weep. Jesus condemns those that live comfortably in this world. Those who are the haves will become the have-nots. And it's not something that will come when the day of the Lord arrives, but it is the express goal of this church that he is founding to overturn the social order of this world. He goes so far as to tell his followers that they will know they are doing it right because those in authority will curse them, just as the prophets of old were cursed before them. And if they are making the comfortable comfortable with them, they're doing it wrong. Now this may make you uncomfortable to hear, which it should. After all, our faith is meant to make us uncomfortable being comfortable is complacency. Complacency means, means that we have given up working on ourselves and given up on working on the world. And that is not Jesus' way. But it can also make you feel uncomfortable because these words feel violent and political. And after all, they are. Social change is often violent and political. But Jesus is not leading a violent movement. He is doing the, everything that was predicted of a Messiah, but he is doing it in a way that was never assumed. For as soon as he finishes this passage, as soon as he preaches damnation, he tells his followers, and he has told his followers who they should align with and who they should align against. He follows it with this passage. This is a good chunk of the next passage. Love your enemies. Do good to those who you hate, who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? I mean, even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those and expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and expect to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything back. Then you, your reward will be great and you will be children of the God most high. 
because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Jesus condemned those that lived comfortably, but he also condemned those that would use violence against them. Instead, he calls for his followers to radically love those that would be their opponents. Jesus will not win this kingdom with the tip of a spear or the edge of a sword, but with an outstretched hand and an offering of compassion. He goes on to warn them not to judge others, recognizing that good only comes from good, and that means that we must transform our entire lives and to build our foundation on his teachings. It's fitting that we come back to foundations. The foundations of our faith are in Christ and in the 12 pillars that he called into his service. Jesus, is, Jesus would end his ministry here with these 12 pillars by getting down on his own knees and washing the feet of the men that he had called to serve him. The kingdom would not be like the other kingdoms. It would, exactly, it would look exactly like what everyone expected, except completely different. Instead of a king standing atop a pyramid, being served by those beneath them, and served by those beneath them, and served by those beneath them, and so on, forming an ever larger expanding pyramid, this one would start with the king at the bottom. And he would serve those that came after. And they would serve those that came after until we form a pyramid upside down with each group serving those who come before and come after. An upside down kingdom that every year adds a new layer as more people hear the call of Christ. We have been called. We have been called to lead. To listen to this outline of what it means to live as Christ's pillars in this world. To lead, to preach, to serve. We are part of an upside down kingdom. Where the one who brought us salvation, the one who offered us perfection, is the one who also washed our feet. So let's do likewise, building and continuing to build this upside down kingdom. Thank you. If you'll join in our final hymn, number 299, um, it's an easy song. I, I realize when I picked this that I'm not sure this congregation is familiar with this one. But it's a lot of fun. This is one I grew up I'm singing all the time. So I invite you to join in. And if you get the wrong notes, that's okay.